Hello there, and welcome to the Amateur Historian Podcast. My name is Sean, and in today's episode, we're going to be continuing our series on the Irish War of Independence. Sorry this episode is technically late, even though it's within the two weeks of making the episodes. I promised this episode would be out last Sunday, but I have been working a crazy amount of hours at work, and I have a couple little side projects I've been working on. But all right, all right, all right. Enough of the little riffraff and the fluff luff and whatever else it is. Here we go. Are you all ready? Because I'm pretty stoked. We're going to be talking about the IRA's capabilities. We're going to talk about the British government's military failures. We're going to talk about Bloody Sunday. So we've got a lot to discuss. We've got a lot to get into. So let's just hop right on in to continue part two of our Irish War of Independence. All right, to get back into it, we need to talk about the IRA's capabilities. And a gentleman we have mentioned before, a gentleman by the name of Michael Collins, who was the main driving force behind the independence movement. Now, his position, like we mentioned in last episode, he was the Minister of Finance in the Irish Republic's government. He was also the IRA's Director of Intelligence, and he was actively involved in providing funds and arms to IRA units when they needed them, and he also was very good at selecting officers from volunteers. Now, because of this, it is recognized that Collins had natural intelligence, he had wonderful organizational skills, and sheer drive that galvanized many of those who came into contact with him. He established what proved to be a very effective network of spies among sympathetic members of the Dublin Metropolitan Police Department, or the DMP. Now, there was a division that was called the G Division, and this division was used by the British government to subvert and destroy the Irish Republic's movement, and they were detested by the IRA. But because of the sheer capability and intelligence and strategic mind Collins had, they were actually able to infiltrate this division. And with this infiltration, and later they were able to infiltrate a group known as the Black and Tans, which is a group we'll talk about later, so put a pin in that. So Collins set up what was called the, quote, squad, which was a group of men whose sole duty and responsibility was to seek out and kill the, quote, G-men and other British spies and agents. Collins' squad began killing RIC intelligence officers from July 1919 onwards. Now, many of the G-men were offered a chance to either resign or leave Ireland from the IRA themselves. And some chose to leave Ireland, and they never returned, and these men just left. And I think it's kind of honorable in a way that the IRA said, like, hey, you know, what we'll do is... If you just leave, we know who you are. Just leave, and we'll leave you alone, and don't worry about it. But if you stay, we're going to kill you. Like, there's a little bit of honor there, in a way. Now, the chief of staff of the IRA was Richard Mulcahy. He was responsible. He was responsible for organizing and directing IRA units around the country. Now, in theory, both Collins and Mulcahy were responsible for the Cajal Bruja, who was the Dahl's Minister of Defense. But Brua had only a supervisory role. He was able to recommend or object to specific actions. Now, a great deal also depended on IRA leaders in local areas, such as Liam Lynch, Tom Barry, Sean Moylan, Sean McAaron, and Ernie O'Malley, who organized guerrilla activity largely on their own initiative and their own goals and what was needed in their regions. For most of the conflict, the IRA's activity was concentrated around Munster and Dublin, with only isolated activity of IRA units elsewhere. 
such as County Riscommon, North County Longford, and West County Mayo. Now, while on paper, the membership of the IRA carried over from the Irish Volunteers was over 100,000 men. Michael Collins estimated that only about 15,000 men actively served in the IRA during the course of the war, with about 3,000 on active service at any time. There were also support organizations, Kaminaman, which, yes, I know, it, it sounds really funny, but that's how it actually sounds. And they are a actual IRA women's group, which I think is super cool. Like, there was a women's group that was solely dedicated to the IRA's movement. I just, oh, that's awesome. And there was also another group that was called, and the youth movement was, was called Fina Eren, who were the ones who were able to carry weapons and intelligence for IRA men, and they were able to secure food and lodgings for them. Like, this was a whole movement. It was young people. It was women. It was this whole movement of a country to get behind the IRA and support their self-sovereignty and their independence. Like, this is really cool. I didn't know there was a youth movement, and I didn't know there was a women's group movement in Ireland for the IRA. So, you know, I'm learning this new stuff all the time. Now, the IRA benefited from these, and especially they benefited from widespread support that was given to them by the general Irish population. No surprise there at all who generally refused to pass information to the IRC and the British military. The Irish population would also, who often provided, quote, safe houses and provisions to IRA units who were, quote, on the run. Much of the IRA's popularity arose from the extensive reaction of the British forces to IRA activity. So once again, the British government is being cited by many people as being too brutal and harsh and so they would much rather support these rebels and provide access and shelter for them than turn them over to the British government themselves. When Eamon de la Vera, remember that guy from last episode? Yeah, he's back. He returned from the United States after meeting with representatives and different support groups and financial groups. He actually ended up demanding that the Dáil, the Republic government, tell the IRA to stop these ambushes and these assassinations because it was allowing the British to successfully portray the IRA as a terrorist organization and group and that they should take on the British forces with conventional military methods. But because of the failure of the Easter Rising, remember, which helped spur on this movement and push it into where it is now, it was immediately dismissed because the leaders of the IRA and others within government knew that if they fought on the British terms in an open warfare, they would lose, and they would lose very quickly. So they would continue with their hit-and-run tactics, and they would also continue with this passive resistance, like we talked about last episode, like completely ignoring and saying the British government doesn't exist, it's not there, it's illegitimate, we are only allowing ourselves to be heard, representative, representative, and we only recognize the Irish government as legitimate. All right, we talked about the IRA's capabilities, what was going on there. We need to turn over and look at the British. We need to look at British policy, British thought, and British government and kind of see what's going on. From what we're able to gather from the evidence and the resources that I have been able to see, British policy towards rebellion was kind of indecisive at first, but by May 1920, the gravity of the situation became very apparent. Irish ostracism of the Royal Irish Constabulary, the IRC, was effective and strikes prevented the movement of troops and by mid-1920 British authority in Ireland was collapsing rapidly. And at first British response 
was very ineffective. Their troops in Ireland were almost completely compromised of Irish citizens who ended up joining the independence movement and kind of made it very difficult for the British to have forces in Ireland. And remember, World War One had just happened. Like, the British military was drained a little bit from fighting this very devastating war with Germany. And so we are now seeing the seeds that were planted really early on for this rebellion have been growing rapidly. And we're seeing that the ability of the British government to counter this movement is really starting to wane. And with that, we actually see a little bit of a collapse of the British administration in Ireland. And in fact, in April 1920, 400 abandoned IRC barracks were burned to the ground to prevent them from being used again, along with almost 100 income tax offices. Now, this had two effects. Firstly, the IRC was forced to withdraw from much of the countryside, leaving it in the hands of the IRA. They weren't able to compete. In June to July 1920, assets failed all across the south and the west of Ireland. Now, trials by jury could not be held because jurors just wouldn't attend. They wouldn't show up. And the collapse of the court system completely continued to demoralize the IRC. And many police officers ended up resigning or retiring. Now, the Irish Republican police that was formed in April and June of 1920, the, the IRP, under the, th under the authority of the Dáil Éireann and former IRA chief of staff, Cahal Brua, to replace the IRC and to enforce the ruling of the Dáil courts. And it was set up under the Irish Republic. And by 1920, the IRP, so remember, the IRP is this new police force that was introduced, it's the Irish Republic Police, had the ability to enforce and was present in 21 of Ireland's 32 counties. And the Dáil Courts were generally socially conservative despite their revolutionary origins and halted the attempts of some landless farmers at redistribution of lands from wealthier landowners to poorer farm owners. So like, we're still seeing that there's still some socially conservative things within the courts and that not everything is equal. But remember, the idea of setting up a separate government that does not recognize the legitimacy of the British government, this is happening. And that these courts are now being used without British approval at all. Like the Republic has set up its own courts, set up its own police department. It's now completely separate from the British government. They are winning the war of legitimacy in the eyes of the Irish people. And that's very important in order to win a war. All right, I know what you're thinking, taxes, but what about the taxes? So secondly, clap. We have the, we have little claps in here now. Secondly, the inland revenue ceased to operate in most of Ireland. People were instead to encouraged to subscribe to Collins' quote, national loan system, which set up and was able to raise funds for the young government and its military. And by the end of the year, the loan had reached 358 thousand euros and it ended up peaking and getting even higher and going all the way up to 380,000 euros an even larger amount totaling five million dollars was raised in the united states by irish americans and was sent to ireland to finance the republic now rates were still paid to local councils and local government but nine out of 11 of these were controlled now by the Sinn fein party and by the republic who naturally refused to pass them on to the British government. Thus, by 1920, the Irish Republic was relatively in the lives and the hands of its own people. They were enforcing their own laws, maintaining its own armed forces, and collecting its own taxes. Even the British liberal journal, The National, wrote 
in August 1920 that the, quote, the central fact of the present situation in Ireland is that the Irish Republic exists. You have a newspaper in Britain that is effectively and is saying that the Irish Republic exists. We are not getting any taxes from them. They have their own government. They have their own institutions. We can't control them anymore. And it's just so fascinating. In the span of four years, a new country has basically been formed and new institutions have been formed. That's pretty quick and it's pretty fast. And the British response to this was to try to reestablish control. So the British decided that they were gonna use forces to try to reassert control over the country. And they often resorted to arbitrary reprisals against Republican activists and a lot of civilian population. Because remember, the civilian population only turned to the IRA because of how forceful the British military presence and its policies were. Now, there was an unofficial government policy of reprisals which began in September 1919 in the town of Fomoyne in the county of Cork when 200 British soldiers looted and burned many of the main businesses of the town and after one of their soldiers had been killed in an arms raid by local IRA forces. That name took me so long to find and it's literally just Fomoy and it just makes me so mad. These Irish names are tough but anyway Arthur Griffith estimated that in the first 18 months of the conflict and of the war British forces carried out about 38,720 raids on private homes. They arrested about 4,982 suspects and committed 1,604 armed assaults, carried out 102 indiscriminate shootings and burnings in towns and villages, and killed 77 people, including women and children. I mean, wouldn't you join the IRA if this was happening to your neighbors and your friends and women and children being killed? Like, the tactics that are being used if you want to keep a people in line with your own government are not being correctly used here. Now, in March 1920, Thomas McCurtain, who was a Sinn Féin Lord Mayor of Cork, was shot dead and killed in his home in front of his wife. The men with blackened faces who were later seen returning with local police back to their barracks. The jury at the inquest into his death returned a verdict of willful murder against David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, and Director Inspector Swansea, among many others, and District Inspector Swansea, among others. Swansea was later tracked down and killed in Lisburn in County Antrim. Now, this patterns of killings and reprisals started to escalate in the second half of 1920 and 1921. The British response to this escalating violence in Ireland was the increasing use of force. Now, reluctant to deploy regular British troops into the country with huge numbers, they set up two parallel military police units to aid the IRC. The Black and Tans, which is a group that was set up to bolster the very terribly demoralized IRC, were about 7,000 strong, and they were mainly ex-British soldiers who were demobilized after World War I. They were first deployed to Ireland in March 1920. Most came from English and Scottish cities. While officially they were part of the IRC, in reality they were a paramilitary force, and after their deployment in March 1920, they rapidly gained a reputation for drunkenness, ill-discipline, and that ended up harming the British government's moral authority in Ireland even more. And in response to the IRA's actions in the summer of 1920, the, quote, Tans 
burnt and sacked numerous small towns throughout Ireland, including Balbriggan, Trim, and Templemore, along with many other different cities. Now, in July 1920, another quasi-military police body was formed, and they were called the Auxiliaries, consisting of 2,215 former British Army officers, which arrived in Ireland. The Auxiliary Division had a reputation that was just as bad as the Tans for their mistreatment of civilian populations, but they tended to be more effective and more willing to take on the IRA. The policy of reprisals, which included public denunciation or denial and private approval, was famously satirized by Lord Hugh Cecil when he was quoted saying, It seems to be agreed that there is no such thing as reprisals, but they are having a good effect, end quote. Now, on August 9th, 1920, the British Parliament passed the Restoration of Order in Ireland Act, which suspended all coroner's courts because of the large number of warrants served on members of the British forces. They were replaced with a, quote, military courts of inquiry, end quote. In addition, the powers of the military court marshals were extended to cover the whole population and were empowered to use the death penalty and internment without any trial. Finally, government payments to local governments in Sinn Féin hands were completely suspended. This act was interpreted by historians like myself as a choice by Prime Minister David Lloyd George to put down the rebellion in Ireland rather than negotiate with the Republican leadership. As a result, violence escalated even more rapidly and steadily from that summer and sharply after November 1920 all the way until July 1921. It was in this time that the largest scale mutiny broke out among the Irish Connaught Rangers who were stationed in India. Two were killed whilst trying to storm an armory and one was later executed. Now a number of events also helped to escalate the conflict in the late 1920s. First the Lord Mayor of Cork's Terence McSweeney died on hunger strike in a Brixton prison in London in October. While two other IRA prisoners were on hunger strike, Joe Murphy and Michael Fitzgerald also died in a Cork jail. So we're seeing as the conflict escalates, we're seeing people dying in jail from hunger strikes because they believe in this cause so deeply. And it's just going to show the amount of violence, but also the amount of dedication each side had, one at restoring order and one at creating its own independent order. And it's just really fascinating to see this. But now we get into a little bit of a dark section of this episode. With the British military and the British army in Ireland so disabled, the government relied, like we said, on these divisions like the auxiliaries and the blacks, the black and tans, which were former soldiers who were, remember, no more than mercenaries. And Michael Collins' most celebrated action of the war occurred on November 21st, also known as Bloody Sunday. On that day, his quote-unquote squad so remember, Michael Collins formed this group in order to hunt down members of like the G-Unit and other spies. And his squad ended up gunning down 19 suspected British Army intelligence officers living as day-to-day civilians in Dublin houses and hotels. The incident illustrated the quality of his informants and the continuing devastating capability of the IRA. So remember, the squad was so effective and so good at intelligence gathering and counterintelligence that they were able to find all this information out, which is why it's so celebrated. Like the IRA knows what it's doing at this time and it's extremely effective. However, this triggered an immediate 
response from the auxiliaries and the black and tans, basically paramilitary groups that were in Ireland. They entered a sports arena where a bunch of spectators were watching a football match, what we call soccer here in the U.S., in Dublin itself. And they shot and killed 12 to 14 people. Figures range and death tolls range from what I was able to find. But this provoked mass violence in the streets, and it's remembered as Bloody Sunday. And the violence in Ireland peaked right after this. From December 1920 till July 1921 is when the most amount of violence happened within Ireland itself. Now, following this incident, during the following eight months until the truce of July 1921 rolled around, there was a spiraling death toll in this conflict, with a thousand people, including IRC police officers, British military, IRA volunteers, and civilians being killed in the months between January and July 1921 alone. This represents 70% of the total casualties for the entire three-year war. In addition, 4,500 IRA personnel or suspected sympathizers were interred in this time. In the middle of the violence, the doll formally declared war on Britain in March 1921. So we're seeing like all this escalations of violence, all this war, and the doll was like, nope, we are definitely at war. We're definitely fighting you. Things are going on. Between November 1st, 1920 and June 7th, 1921, 24 men were executed by the British. The first IRA volunteer to be executed was Kevin Barry, one of the forgotten 10 who was buried in unmarked graves in unconsecrated ground inside Mountjoy Prison until 2001. And on February 1st, the first execution under martial law of an IRA man also took place. Cornelius Murphy of Mill Street, Cork, was shot in Cork City. And on the 28th of February, six more people were executed again in Cork. Because remember, the British government signed into law, there is only military courts. There's no trial. There's no nothing. Like, if the military thinks you are involved, you're dead. Like, there is no chance to prove yourself. And it just, it, think about it. All this could have been solved if the British government just came to the table way early on, even before the Easter Rise, and said, hey, let's negotiate. Let's see what we can figure out, and let's see what we can work out and come to. It's just amazing and interesting to see how quickly this all escalated. And we're going to end the episode right there and leave it on a cliffhanger on the single biggest loss for the IRA and what some historians, especially military historians, have concluded about why the IRA was so successful in their guerrilla warfare and what other tactics they used that many people don't think about and possibly even bring the war to England itself. So that is where we're going to end. Thank you all so much for your patience. I really appreciate it. I've just been really busy with work and however everything else has been going on. And so once again, I'm really, really happy you're here with me. Where can you find me though? Well, I am on all the social media. I am on Instagram as at running Olaf. You can follow me on Twitter at Sean underscore Kierce. You can follow me at Twitch at twitch.tv slash amateur gaming 36, where I talk about politics, history. I rage with some of my wonderful friends and we play games. Remember, share this podcast with anyone you know on Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you name it, we're here. Go rate and review the podcast and let me know what you guys want to hear you can email me your suggestions for episode ideas and content and it's going to be at 
theamateurhistorianpodcast at gmail.com. Please email me. I want to hear from you all. I want your tips. I want your advice. I want you to tell me if my audio is terrible or how I can improve my sound quality or anything else. I want to know. I want to make sure you guys like my podcast. And don't forget to leave it a review. Please go leave a review on iTunes or anywhere where you listen to your podcast, even Google. I don't know if I'm like there yet. Please go leave me a review. I would really appreciate it. And I will see you here in two weeks or maybe even this next weekend if I can get an episode out fast enough to make up for last week because I didn't release an episode last week. But hopefully I will have another episode out here in a week or two. Keep an eye out. I'm aiming again for every two weeks, um, but I feel like I owe you guys an episode from last week. So come back for part three of our Irish history and our Irish War of Independence. And remember, is that a pipe bomb in your mailbox or are you just happy to see me? Don't forget, it's never too late to learn. Good day, good evening, good night. We'll see you later.